welcome to the Become a Writer Today podcast with Brian Collins. Here you'll find practical advice and interviews for all kinds of writers. Storytelling belongs not just in books, but in radio shows, in documentaries and in video games. I've been an avid video gamer over the years and some of my favourite games have included the Doom and Quake series. I've also been fascinated by how gaming has been elevated as an art form through storytelling and world building and so on. Recently, I had the opportunity to speak to John Romero, the man behind games like Doom and Quake and Heretic. John knows all about how to work in creative projects for the long term and also what to do when a creative project is finished. Although John isn't a writer, I think you'll find that developers and writers have a lot in common. Both types of work demand that you focus intensely on a creative project for a long time and that you figure out ways of finding interesting ideas and then turning it into something that gamers or readers want. So I started by asking John, how does he focus on one creative idea and work on it for an extended period? John, you seem like a man who has a lot of creative ideas for great games and other projects over the years. So how do you decide on what idea to focus on or work on and what to put off until later? <sighs> well, it's different for every single game and it depends on when I, you know, come up, I decide to, that's like time to make another game. And the idea could come from just what's going on in the, in the game industry, what platforms are exciting to me, ideas that, you know, have tons of ideas and they kind of percolate for a long time and then maybe there's the right time to make it. Could be a market that's interesting. Like when Brenda and I started, we started a loot drop eight years ago and that was right at the height of the Facebook game era. And we wanted to see what Facebook game design was all about. And it was totally different design patterns than anything we'd seen. And it was exciting. So we, we started a Facebook game company and that went for, for five, six years. Anytime a game idea comes up, it's, it's, I mean, I do game jams and the ideas that I use for game that I have for game jams have nothing to do with stuff that I would actually publish. So it's just constantly, constant amount of ideas. I've, I've published about 150 games. Yeah, and you've published some big, some big games over the years, such as Doom and, and Quake and so on. I'm wondering, for somebody who's worked in the industry for over 30 years, how do you sustain your, you know, your excitement and your enthusiasm for focusing on a particular type of work? It's just super fun making games. <laughs> you know, like when, when you get to work on a lot of the aspects of making a game, it just gets more exciting. So you could be a programmer and you could be coding for decades, you know, but, you know, coding in itself is awesome. But it's even more fun if on top of that, you can add in game design, level design, audio design, writing, you name it. There's all kinds of super fun vectors into a, a single game. And the more of those that you get proficient at, you know, the more excited you are to stay doing it. So I think branching out is the thing that's important to being excited for a long time in the game industry. Are there any particular lessons that you've learned about shipping games over the years from reading about some of the projects that you've worked on? You've worked on huge titles and you've also worked on smaller titles. Yeah, there's a lot of lessons. <laughs> there's so many lessons. There's a few real core ones. Like if you're going to start a company with somebody, you need to know them extremely well. Just the same way that you would marry somebody. 
uh, and you have a you know personal family, you're kind of going to be creating a work family. So it's important, highly important, that you know who your co-founders are and you've known them for a while. Otherwise, you're taking a huge risk saying you're going to co-found a company with some nice guy or a nice person. So uh, there's that. There's like make sure you're hiring the most experienced people you can because they'll help you solve problems. It's important to, at the beginning, outsource as much business stuff as you can, you know, because there's lots of services out there to handle your HR and payroll and, and all kinds of stuff. You know, like the world is full of service right now. So it's a great idea to just outsource things. That's something I was particularly interested in. From reading about what your work in the past, you have spoken about how you love to actually play games and, you know, design the levels and so on. But I'm sure you have lots of other tasks to do when you're, you know, managing a business as well. So do you still have time to play the games that you're creating? Or do you spend a lot of your day on the actual operations and management side of a business? Um, probably half the day, at least, is, is business stuff. And I'm doing production on our current game. And then the other half is working on the game itself. You know, whether that's programming or doing audio or design work or uh, level design, kind of you name it, can do any of it. Actually, we're working on multiple games. So there's another project that I program on, you know, design and code on. And then I have a personal project that I'm doing just by myself. So yeah, I'm really, really busy creating still, but also doing tons of business stuff at the same time. So one thing I've noticed is different parts of the day are ideal for different activities. So for example, a writer might work on a first draft in the morning and they might edit in the afternoon and they might attend to, you know, social media and marketing in, in the evening. Do you wake up your day like that or, or how do you organize yourself? Well, yeah, first I do mail. <laughs> I got to catch up on mail because if there's anything important that I need to answer, I want to do that first thing to just make sure that I'm caught up for whatever came in overnight. Since we're eight hours ahead of the United States, stuff could totally come in while I'm sleeping. So it's important. Not, not that I do a lot of business in the U.S., but it's a good idea to to just do email first. And then we kind of do stand-up where we all know what's going on with every team member and what we're working on. And then I usually do business stuff after that for a while. And I try and keep the creative stuff until at least four, you know, after 4 p.m. And do you work late then in the evening as well? Or do, or do, you, do you stop around five or six? No, I always work late. I mean, the, my, my best time to work is really like starting at 9 p.m. until, you know, two, three in the morning. And do you still find time to play games as well? Yeah, I mean, during that time, things will come up and I might be like, okay, before I get into this, this project and start doing stuff, I want to play a little bit of Hitman 2, or we're, you know, we, we do Quake deathmatches all the time here. Like everybody is excited about Quake 1. At lunchtime, people just start up servers and play. And then sometimes like on Thursday nights, I play for hours on Thursday nights with my lead programmer because he's really, really good. So we have a total fun time, you know, deathmatching for at least three hours on Thursdays. No Call of Duty, you know? Not yet, but I'm excited to try out the, the new Battle Royale mode. Okay. And how important do you think it is to, you know, have moments of play like you've described? Like, does that help when it's time to, you know, do something creative for your business or for a project that you're working on? Oh, totally. I mean, we do play a lot of games. We have here at the office, there are so many board games. It's just nuts. They're everywhere. We have so many board games. We have hundreds of board games. The team here plays magic like crazy. They have card, they have massive card collections. 
We have two D&D campaigns going on that happen once a week. I mean, we all, we all are like living games. It's not like we go home to some normal non-game life because our whole career and our life is games. So we just go home and either do some more coding or games, play games. Is there many on your team? Uh, we have 20 people on our team right now. Okay, and I suppose since you've started working in the gaming industry, you know, things have probably changed radically even in how long it can take to ship a big title. So how has that changed how you approach your creative projects? Uh, well, it's different depending on which game. So I still do one-person game stuff. The biggest project I had, I had 100 people every day working on it. And that required a lot more organization with multiple producers per discipline, an executive producer, lots of outsource management, you know, uh, multiple tiers of uh, disciplines like in design, there's like system design and level design and learning design. In programming, there's database programming, there's systems programming, there's graphics programming, network programming, like, (laughs) you know, the team, the big teams have lots of layers. But uh, you have to have that just to keep everything straight and make sure that that, uh, we're all doing the right thing. So how do you decide what to do yourself versus delegate versus put off until you know tomorrow or the next sprint or the next month? Uh, yeah, usually I don't do anything that's critical path. So everyone else is tasked with the whole thing. And when I can help out, then I'll just take something over real quick and do, do some work. And then uh, someone else might revise it. Somebody else might, um, you know, usually it's like revision or they leave it alone or they just use it to go to another stage. So I don't do anything where I'm holding up the team if I can't find time to do it. The gaming industry strikes me as one that can be pretty brutal in that if a title can be released and get bad reviews. So how do you find your way back after or something you've worked on maybe doesn't quite get the reception that you would have liked at the start of the project? Uh, well, that's like most games. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's really hard to... Like discovery nowadays is really hard. So you have to have a really good marketing team. Uh, either that or your game is like really, really good. So, you know, when we work with publishers, they're the ones who are going to be dumping a lot of money into marketing and making sure the game is visible and they market to their current base and all that kind of stuff. But when we do something on our own, like as an, as an example, uh, almost two years ago, we launched a game called Gunman Taco Truck on Steam and on iOS. And it was our son's game design. When he was nine years old, he came up with this really cool idea for a game. And then we spent a couple of years making it and then launched it. And we just launched it quietly. We self-published it. So we didn't go through anyone else. There was no advertising or anything. But it was a really good game. And Apple decided to choose to make it part of the games we love for a week. And then when we put on the Mac App Store, they did the same thing for the Mac version. And then I think the next year, they decided to do... Or no, later that year, they decided to do a, um, an in-depth story with Donovan, basically just interviewing him about the whole process of you know, how he came up with the idea and how he made it. So Donovan has a story on the App Store. When they revamped, when they decided to relaunch the App Store with all the new stuff, this was one of their head stories. Like this one, one of the new things they wanted to come out with. And then just recently in September, which is like a year after that story ran, they emailed me and asked if I would make a special iPhone 10s Max or iPhone 10 version of the game so it looks good on that phone and then they would promote it. And I found out that 
20,000 games come out every month on the App Store. It's an insane number of games that are being dumped out there constantly. So discovery is really hard, but I got, you know, Apple decided to email me to modify one of my games to work well on their latest phone. That shows you how good the game was. And it was because we spent a lot of time on it. So if you can spend a good amount of time on you know, developing a game and, and launch it when it's ready, you can make a game that stands out. And this was a game that you had self-published rather than going the additional route? Yeah, we just published it on the App Store like anybody can do. And we did not advertise or do anything. And it just got attention because it's funny. You know, the, the, as soon as we released it on PC, a woman in Australia started streaming it on Twitch and she played for a solid seven hours. We had that stream going for seven solid hours the first day. And it's just tons of streamers picked it up and started playing the game. One thing I read about was the barriers that you, you know you had to overcome when you were making your, your first games, the Commander Keen series and Wolfenstein and so on. Things have obviously gotten a lot easier for game developers today. You think that's a good thing that it's so easy now to self-publish? Well, yeah. I mean, back in the back in the early days, like Commander Keen was you know ten years after I started learning how to code and making games. You know, the eighties were assembly language, <laughs> bitmap graphics, and assembly language. It was. You know, as, as low as it goes, as far as programming, you're, you're as close to the CPU as possible. You're directly programming the CPU. And that was a ton of work because you had to know the architecture of the machine. And even getting into Commander Keen era in 1990, you know, you didn't have to know the architecture of anything but the graphics card, really, at that point. So knowing that really, really well was very helpful for us to basically come up with our smooth scrolling code, which then kind of changed games on the PC. It was, was seen as a gaming machine now that it could compete with Nintendo. We switched over to doing development on a much more like a, on a, on a superior platform at the end of 1992 when we switched to the Next Step operating system, which has migrated into... OS, you know, OS 10 today. So we were working on next step machines back in the, the early 90s. And that's how we developed Doom. And we developed Doom 2 and Heretic and Hexen and Quake all on that platform. So our, our DOS machines were just sitting there ready to run the latest compilation that we made on our, our workstations. So yeah, development has really changed. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like the barriers to entry have really dropped one other thing I was, I was interested in is if the barriers to entry have dropped, do you think that means the standard of games out there has dropped as well? Or does it mean that you just have to get a bit better at marketing your work? You have to have good games for people to want to play them. <laughs> so there has been and always has been really bad games. And there have been really, really good games. And it's just the number of people making games, it wasn't like there was a small number of people making the best games in the world. It's always been all over the place, quality-wise. So just the fact that you can now get Unity or Unreal and start making a game means that there's just more games that you can see out there. And it just, you know, maybe there's some more games that are lower quality design-wise, but tech-wise, not too bad because they're using really good engines like Unity and Unreal. But I think it's really important that there's access to creators that are designers, not programmers, that can come up with really cool ideas, and at least get them prototyped in a modern-day engine 
and kind of see where it goes, you know, because really at the end of the day, it's not the technology that you're trying to play. You're trying to play an amazing design. And the more people that have access to making their designs come alive just makes the industry better. One thing you have not also noticed is that you, you built up a great relationship with the gaming community over the years from, you know, the Quake community and the Doom community and so on. But a lot of creative professionals struggle when it comes to, you know, that type of outreach or marketing their work because they'd rather spend time, you know, writing or coding or working on their creative projects. So how have you made peace with that, with balancing marketing and creating? Usually it's because something just popped up and, you know, like Twitter makes it easy to, to interact with people. I used to have a forum on my website, um, geez, almost 20 years ago, and it was really populated with a ton of people. And it was really great. Like people loved it. And this was back in the days of BBS or, yeah, I guess that was like Bolton Board Systems. But I mean, they're, they're forums, early forums, like P, PHP, BBS, that kind of stuff. And now it's kind of Reddit, you know, where there's a lot of people in communities. But um, I've always, you know, been a part of, I have a lot of communities right now because I made so many games. So there's Commander Keen people, there's Doom people, there's Wolfenstein fanatics, there's Quake nuts, there's Dangerous Dave fanatics, Daikatana fanatics, Heretic and Hexen, you know, you name it. There's a fan base for a specific game and they just kind of fixed on those games I used to get I used to get letters for a game I made called Pyramids of Egypt, which you've never heard of, and I made it in 1985. You know, like people, I'd get letters from people telling me that they're getting high scores on it and how great it was, and you know, just you pick up fan bases, you know, for things that you release. And if you talk to people, you know, they're interested in finding more out about the games or just to tell you that they like them. And responding to people is just you know common courtesy. You know, if they email you, you answer them. So we get lots and lots of emails every day about everything. You know, the more games you publish, the more incoming stuff you're going to get over the years. So we have a lot coming in. I can imagine. How do you manage all that incoming information from, you know, gamers of your various releases over the years? Uh, Well, Brenda helps me with it. You know, she has her own groups of fans for various things she's done as well. But she's really good. She's an awesome writer. She's a fast typer. She knows what to say. She's very just. She's just perfect for communications. So sometimes she'll just ask me to answer for something that I can tell her to you know, that, that she'll just type up because she's answering stuff. Um, but usually I'm the one, you know, writing stuff down. You know, I've got a I've got a really active Instagram that um, is doing pretty well. Just just recently decided to kind of take control of Instagram, my Instagram, which is the Romero, and basically just start posting pictures. As you know, constantly and doing 20 questions and doing prize giveaways and stuff like that because the community really loves it. There's an, an Instagram that gives them what they're interested in and does extra stuff. And finally, how important is story in games today? I was reading about Red Dead Redemption 2 and the amount of work that went into the story behind that game, and it was almost like writing War and Peace. I think it's really. It depends on the game, you know, how important it is. Like Minecraft, what's the story? The story is the one that you make, you know? So some games provide a sandbox to create stories with. And then there are games like Red Dead that are these huge worlds that have so much going on. And, or World of Warcraft, same thing. There's a ton of lore. There's a ton of stuff going on. And when you choose to interact with those areas of the game, 
you get locational stories in those areas. And, you know, it's stuff that you're kind of asking for. So it's, it's great because you're not forced into a story and you're not forced to read the text. You're choosing to engage with it. And to me, that's one of the best ways of storytelling is, is that the story is a pull from the player versus a push onto the player. So sandbox games like even GTA, which is this great world that you could just mess around in and never do one single mission. You know, you don't get access to the full world, but you have so much fun just messing around without even going on a mission. It's just amazing. So I really like that design has gone in that direction. What Remains of Edith Finch is a really amazing example of a 3D environment where you can walk around and just look at everything. And the story is happening as you're walking and you're not forced to read it. And if there is any, you know, when there is reading, it's a sentence. It's one sentence at a time, you know, and there's talking and just so well done. So I think that, you know, the medium is exploring lots of ways to present narrative and gameplay at the same time to kind of get rid of the stigma of what about games that are just story, you know, what remains of Edith Finch is an entire story, but you don't feel like you're pushed into a story. You're exploring and finding the story. So it's, it's basically giving you a super futuristic interaction with a book, but it's, but it's this really cool, you know, 3D world with like some of the best graphics you can get. Yeah, I think, I think gaming has really been elevated as an art form over the years. Uh, where can people find you online, John? All over the place. Romero.com, RomeroGames.com, R-O-M-E.R-O, which is Romero. <laughs> yep. Thanks, John. That was great. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed this podcast episode. If you did, please leave a rating on the iTunes store. And if you want to accomplish more with your writing, please visit becomearitertoday.com forward slash join and I'll send you a free email course. Thanks for listening.